This time of year, we are looking for those special gifts that will put a smile on the faces of those that we know and love. Today is my special gift to you because the guest that you're going to hear in the next hour is guaranteed to put a smile on your face and a song in your heart. Stay tuned. There is the word, there is the way, and brothers and sisters who find strength in their belief. We meet Faces of Faith with Bill Scoggins. Welcome in once again to Faces of Faith. I am delighted to have you here as we steamroll toward Christmas. We're only a little over a week away, and I couldn't have a better guest on my podcast today than Kevin Williams. Kevin is joining us from his home in Nashville, Tennessee, or thereabouts. And Kevin, welcome into my podcast, buddy. I'm so glad to be with you, Phil. This is wonderful. And you, you're dressed up. You've got your Christmas tie on there. I like that. I try to compete with Bill Gaither. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's more into the V-neck sweater kind of vibe these days, you know, so we'll change up a little bit, but that's good. Yeah, I'm glad to be with you. This You've told me about this before, and uh, we tried to work out a date, and it, it kind of didn't work for a little while, so I'm just honored to be here with you today, and, and we're going to have fun. Well, I want people to, uh, to know who you are, and of course, I've had uh, some inside track into to who Kevin Williams is. I've seen you in concert so many times, but I want our audience to know. And the best way to do that is really to just say, Kevin, you know, share a little bit about of your bio, your, your hometown. You're from uh, a little uh, Russell Springs, Kentucky. We want to hear right. about, we want to hear about your hometown. And as we uh, share about how you got started playing the guitar, because people need to understand that you're not only a gifted artist playing, you're an incredible comedian. You keep Bill Gaither laughing with the Gaither Vocal Band and those performances. Uh, you co-host his um, uh, um, radio show uh, once a week that's heard on over 3,500 stations nationwide. So uh, we want to get to know Kevin better when he's not behind a microphone or not on a stage. So tell us what you want us to know about Kevin Williams. I'm, I'm nearly always behind a microphone somewhere in some way, shape, or form. I, and I love that. Uh, and what you see is what you get most of the time. I don't think there's really a, a totally different me, uh, to, to know, but, uh, in any given setting, you only see a little slice of the pie. So, so a lot of folks just know me as a funny guy, or they just know me as, you know, I do a lot of uh, recording sessions and I produce and I, So they just know me as a musical entity or they know me as whatever. And, uh, or the radio, uh, host, I've been in broadcasting uh, since my first job when I was 16 years old. And I'll take you back to the beginning, okay. beginning. But uh, before I go back, all the way back to the flood, um, <laughs> let me tell you, at 16, I wanted to work in radio so bad. Now, was your first job in radio? It or, was. Or did, yeah. Okay. I, I, I've started out for two years in radio before I, I transitioned to TV. Yep. And, and I loved that. I, I was 16 years old going to high school, junior in high school. And I, I uh, let's see, well, uh, I, I think I spent several years as a freshman, but then by the time I got to be a junior <laughs> and, and uh, I, I uh, would get off work, uh, get off school at three o'clock in the afternoon, go and, and, and uh, spin records. And uh, I tried my hand, you know, early on at writing news and, and writing copy and, and doing production, doing everything you do in a small market radio station. And broadcasting gets in your blood it and does. it never leaves. And uh, I love that. And I'm honored to get to co-host this thing called Homecoming Radio with Bill. And we can talk about that in a little bit. But um, in one way or another, I've been behind a microphone, uh, you know, since 14, 15, 16 years old. Uh, at 14, I was on a bus for the first time with the Rock of Ages Quartet playing my guitar all through central Kentucky and any church that would let us uh, come and set up a, a PA system, you know, and I was thrashing on a guitar and, and, uh, only knew about four chords, but I used them a lot. <laughs> and, uh, so, so in one way or another, I've been on a bus since I was 14 and, and in music and, uh, well, how did you get started playing the guitar, the guitar? Well, growing up in Russell Springs and, and I gotta tell you, that's, that's a beautiful place on Lake Cumberland. I, I couldn't have had a better upbringing and I'm an only child, and, and that explains a lot, I know. But um, Now you know, people. Now you know. And you, after this hour, you're going to realize this is a strange brain you're hearing from here. But, but um, uh, yeah, growing up there was wonderful, and, and my folks were hardworking. Dad had a factory job, and uh, Mom worked as a clerk 
in a store and uh, um, you know the, we we didn't make any money i remember we when the, when the school lunch forms came home i was in the poverty column wow. i remember that and i remember how that felt and uh, uh, but but i had great gifts as you mentioned i had a gift of a hard working set of parents and parents that loved me and aimed me and directed me. And my mom had me in church since before I could spell church, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so th- those were great gifts. And growing up in a little church with 40 people there in, uh, in Russell Springs, and the little white church still stands to this day. I bet, um, it's, a, I bet it's a pretty postcard. Oh, it is. It's beautiful. Yeah. And, and, uh, and there's no way I could translate the memories into a postcard. Yeah. Um, because that's where I learned to love Jesus. I learned to love music and I learned to love people, uh, in that whole context of that little upbringing there. And and so I was, uh, from the time I was 12, I was playing, I carried a guitar around, uh, from the time I was in diapers. I, I, I remember, uh, my dad had bought me this little kind of a toy guitar and I was enamored with it because I, uh, I had seen on TV, not only seen the, the Beatles on the Sullivan show, you know, yeah. but um, folks like Buck Owens, I was really into that. Yes. Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. And of course the Glenn Campbell, good time hour, my Lance, and, and, and I would watch the Lawrence Welk show and they had a guitar player in the orchestra back there. And so I, I was not as enamored with the, uh, the accordion as I was <laughs> the guitar guy back there, you know, and I would watch the guitar guy in the, in the orchestra on the Carson show. And uh, so I was always looking for the guitars. I, I don't know why, uh, but but that was any of your family was, members. Your your dad did he play? My dad and mom have no music in them, really? and and uh, my I had a grandfather that played the fiddle, uh-huh. and he died when I was four. I never got to hear him play. Um, I wish I had. Oh, and wouldn't but, uh, he enjoy listening to you today? Oh, wow. Well, that would that would be neat for me to see his mm. eyebrow raise at yeah. maybe something I was doing. I, yeah, I've, I've thought about that from time to time, um, but I uh, I had the stories of of him playing, and uh, he grew up as well in a rural area there in, in Kentucky, and so I was dragging that guitar around, not knowing what to do, and kind of pretending to play, you know, uh, my whole growing up, until I was twelve years old, and we found somebody to give me guitar lessons. Uh, his name was Larry Beasley still a dear friend of mine, still lives there and still teaches to this day. They say he has taught more acoustic musicians in the state of Kentucky than anyone else. He played banjo for Carl Story and uh, all the the bluegrass greats, including the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe. Whoa. Uh, he, he was Mr. Monroe's uh, uh, bluegrass, his banjo player for a time in his bluegrass band. And, um, and then he began teaching and he taught guitar and bass and mandolin and all these instruments. And, uh, and is just an absolutely fantastic guitar and, and banjo player. So um, he began to show me, uh, I showed up every Friday night at five o'clock was my slot uh-huh. for $7 a lesson. Wow. And my folks that didn't wouldn't have get you to, 10 minutes today. <laughs> I and I don't know where my folks got the seven dollars, to be honest with you. I, I really don't know. They, she had to skimp and save and, and figure that out, budget that seven in there. And that seems when I look back at their situation, probably seemed frivolous. But she, uh, my mom, knew there was a purpose in that somehow and that God was directing them. Now, I'm an emotional type. I, I laugh a lot and I cry a lot. So you're going to see me tear up when I talk about these old times here. You go right uh, ahead. Uh, we, but, that's showing us who Kevin really is. <laughs> well, my family, no, my, my, my daughters say that on my tombstone, it's going to say, Jesus wept and so did he. <laughs> Kevin. <laughs> so, uh, that just comes natural for me. But, but uh, during those five o'clock uh, hours on, on Friday nights, uh, I developed a relationship with this wonderful musician. And who cared about me and taught me literally how to hold a guitar. I mean, I, I knew nothing going in. And it seemed like it was about two years before anything really started to click. I was doing all the rudimentary things. And um, he was teaching me to play by ear. Uh, he himself didn't, uh, didn't read music. Mm-hmm. And I didn't learn to read any music until I was probably 19, 20 years old. I, I was teaching myself by that point and trying to pick up anything I could about music theory. And so... Um, so this was all ear training and it was so valuable to me because so many musicians who learned to play the page 
and don't have a, a you know, an ear training background, uh-huh. they come to me and they say, how do you do that? And I don't really think what I'm doing is all that special. And, and, uh, but they had, it had, they have to see it on a page. They can't just hear something and pick it up. Uh-huh. And, and God was giving me that gift Absolutely. through this wonderful man. So, um, two years before anything clicked. And then I got to be, I, I was 14 and I knew it all then, you know, and, um, so, so the, the, I was starting to make music and it was sounding good. I was, I was liking what I was doing, you know, I started playing in church and, um, did you have a clue at you, that age that, that you'd have a career to, to come oh, no. after this? No, but I was, I was sort of pretending and envisioning that in my mind. I, I was playing that out as very imaginative kid, which, uh, imagination, you know, not only helps you in music, but especially in production, uh-huh. uh, any kind of, even the production you're doing today, you've got to see this thing coming together and what that's going to be before you can uh, develop it. So I think uh, God was building all of that in me at that time, you know. And um, so so I would play along with Glenn Campbell or with uh-huh. whoever, you know. Uh, as soon as he said, hi, I'm Johnny Cash, I knew that was going to be in an E chord, whatever that next song <laughs> And uh it, you know, I'm sure it was all pretty bad, but but it was something, and and I could kind of see that, and uh, I started playing in church, and, and, and here's a side note, Phil. Um, I at this point in my career and in my life, uh, very fortunate that I get emails pretty much every day from somebody around the world who says, uh, "Hey, I watch you on the Gaithers. Uh-huh. Never knew I'd have that platform, you know," uh-huh. and and they say. Uh, how can I get to do what you're doing? I mean, that that's literally the question in, in in various forms, but that's always the question. How do I do what you're doing? And uh, and I think back, you know, I didn't have anybody to ask that question to. Um, and, and so it's a big responsibility when you get that to, to say what you do. And, and my answer is what I did, uh, start in church. That's, that's always a great sound beginning for any kind of talent that you feel like God's giving you or calling that God's putting yes, on your life. Yes. If you can funnel that into um, a body of believers and, and, and serve in that way while you're learning your craft and while you're figuring it out, while God's showing you. And, and uh, now I wasn't thinking of it in those terms back then. I just knew uh, I, I had a gift and I wanted to use that church and it's pretty much that simple. And I, I learned all these great hymns. I, I, you know, I was talking to, to Buddy Green, a Georgia native, you know, who, who does the hymns as well as anybody I've ever heard. Um, but he came to Christ much later in life. He had a church background, but didn't give his life to Christ. So he missed out on, on a lot of early great music, I think. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and we talk about that. Um, and, and, and so then he comes back around to, to rediscovering uh, hymns. Well, I had that handed to me on a, on a silver yeah. platter. I just, you know, learning to play guitar. And, and now Mark Lowry says, well, you, you play the hymns like nobody plays the hymns. Well, it's just the way I do it. And it's the way I heard piano players play it yes. back then. And yes. I'm sort of in, you know, extrapolating that and putting it on a fretboard. I don't, I don't know how you'd say what I'm doing, but, um, but that was a real gift. And, and so I did that for years, played with every quartet, every artist around central Kentucky, literally from the time I was 14 on and uh, didn't take any money. I mean, if they tried to buy a pack of guitar strings for me, I turned it down. I, I felt like that was, you know, I was, I was paying my dues and I was mm-hmm. offering this up as a sacrifice. And, um, so God that, that tells me a lot about who you are now, at that age I, that you would have that kind of, uh, of, of concept of wanting to, to pay your dues. And in this generation today, I think we don't <laughs> see as much. It's give it to me now. And I don't want to, I want to take the shortcuts to get to where you are. You know, now, I was, uh, I had a little bit of a lack of, uh, knowledge, not a lack of understanding necessarily, but, but I, I, I knew I had to pay my dues. I didn't know what the dues were. That makes sense. Uh-huh. And, and, and uh, so I, I was just out there trying, I thought if I, if I come at this as honestly as I can and offer it up, I know I'm not playing everything right. And I know I'm not the best and I know I'm not whatever, but I'm going to give you everything I got. 
and, uh, and, and see where you take me. And so by 17, I prayed a prayer, um, I, I, you know, which was essentially Lord. And I was going through this whole upheaval in, in, in my life of what do I want to do with my life? I had good grades in school. And, and so what's college look like? And is there a music degree for me? And, or, is, or is it some kind of ministry degree? Or am I geared toward, I, I like people. So, you know, am, am I a salesman or am I, a, you know, I was questioning all of this at 17. And the girlfriends I, I would go out with, they thought I was such a heavy thinker. They, that was not attractive. They were kind of in life, you know, for the, the, the car and the moment and everything. And I'm going, what am I going to do with my life? You know? So you could, you could sure um, croon them. Well, <laughs> that, that wasn't all that effective. Bill, I, just tell you. I, I remember I, I was taking one girl home uh, one night. She got out of the car before I even got in the driveway, man. I just slowed down. She was on out of there. But um, th- those were great days. And I, I prayed that prayer at 17. And I said, Lord, whatever stage you, you want to give me, whatever platform, whatever that looks like, I'll be faithful with it. And uh, And I meant that. I didn't know what it was. And, and I knew the possibilities were that that would be playing for an artist uh, or a choir or a church ministry. I, I assumed it would be bigger than the rural setting that I was in, mm-hmm. but I, I didn't really know. And um, and then all the time I'm, I'm looking at the safety and security mindset that I had sort of grown up with when you, when you grow up poor and you grow up in a, in a especially a rural area, uh, safety and security are kind of, first and foremost, more than uh, achieving greatness or jumping out there or risking. And uh, so, so I was going to a vocational school at the time and learning electricity. By the way, I can wire your house, uh, Phil. You wouldn't want me to wire your house, but I do have that background. Wait, my dad's an electrician, so that's, I'm, I'm accustomed to well, the techniques that it takes to, to make uh, this kind of thing happen in this room. I, I had two years of vocational training, and, wow. and then I was supposed to come back uh, and be like an associate trainer there at the school. And then my plan was possibly getting my state license to be an electrical inspector. And I'm thinking the whole time I'm thinking safety and security, mm-hmm. and those are great aspirations, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but God was dealing with me in this risk place, this place of surrender and trust, and this abyss of, you know. Uh, follow me. Mm-hmm. Now that's a, that's a, that's a weird place to be sometimes. And, uh, it'll teach you a lot. And so, uh, so I'm 17, 18, trying to, trying to deal with all that. And, um, I am playing with, uh, and I'm gonna take you back to 14 now, uh, the rock of ages quartet. And that was the first bus I was on. Those guys were so nice to me and letting me travel. And they just knew my love for the Lord. I think mm-hmm. talent was secondary. Um, they just appreciated my effort, my commitment, you know, and I had good energy. I always brought energy into everything. I'd, I'd make everybody better. I think, you know, by being in the room, I'm, That's I'm you. you know, <laughs> I, I love that. And I feel like God put me here for that. And, and so long after the fingers have gone, maybe I'll still be able to do that, you know, but, but, um, that, that was always, uh, something I just enjoyed. And so I would lighten the mood. And, uh, if, um, uh, if if somebody said that the guitar is too loud, I go, Oh yeah, I think it is too. You know, <laughs> there's what I just always cracking a joke and kind of lightening the mood. And, uh, then I went, and you with do it well that. with, with Bill Gaither and the Gaither vocal band and then the homecoming crowd. Uh, I don't know how those programs would come off without the glue that Kevin Williams is that in, injects the light moments uh, you know, keeps a check on Bill, <laughs> reels him in when he needs to be reeled in and steered when he needs to be steered. Check on Bill. You know, I have to see where that's going to. Um, I, I love that guy. And I'll, and I'll tell you more about that, too. He has a great sense of humor. And I always enjoyed being around people who enjoy humor. Um, I, I would, uh, you know, Johnny Carson was a hero of mine in that. And, and so I loved his self-deprecating sense of humor, the way mm-hmm. he would handle when a joke yeah. bombed, I mean, all of that stuff. And I'm watching that from the time I'm 12, probably on, and uh, um, watching rapport with crowds. Um, you know how how you handle. If, if you're going to be given a platform, you you better have 
some kind of skill uh, to be able to handle that platform and, and some dedication to developing a skill that involves leading a crowd of people that you don't know uh-huh. in a certain kind of moment. And uh, so, so I was watching people like that and watching the old comics, Milton Burrow and Jack Benny and, and Groucho and those guys. I, I'd watch all of that because there was a certain amount of, you know, just performance element to it. But then there was also an understanding and a rapport that was happening. And, uh, and I remember getting at it at an early age and, and trying to think, okay, you know, there's, I, I, and I would imitate what they were doing a little bit. That didn't really work, and, and, and all the time trying to find out who I was, you know, and, and not come now, off. Were you the comedian in school? Yeah, but in a good way. I wasn't uh, – all my teachers liked me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I wasn't what you'd necessarily think of as the class clown, but I was always lightening the mood. I, I was pretty good at being clever, mm-hmm. um, trying not to come off sarcastic, but sort of being sarcastic too, you know, so, so trying to come off harmless and, and, uh, and there again, just trying to make everybody better and and enjoy their day. Teachers Mm -hmm. don't usually enjoy their day. I mean, Mm -hmm. come on, you know, you got a bunch of unruly kids. Mm -hmm. And uh, so just trying to inject some levity into that. And then on the bus with these, these gospel groups, um, I I think I was pretty fun hang, you know, I'd, I'd, uh, And we, we'd poke fun at each other, and I didn't encourage people to poke fun at me. You know, I said, can you believe that lick I played tonight? It was horrible, you know, and th- those kind of things, just trying to get um, people to lighten up. I, it, it's interesting to me, uh, Christians get so uptight sometimes. We are just great at, at getting stressed and uptight. Mm-hmm. And uh, of all people, we should be so joyful, you know, but we don't stay mindful of that. We we uh, we drift away from that and uh, life happens. So, well, I, I like to try to bring us back to that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and especially this is the season of joy. Christ came to bring joy and freedom. Uh, so um, so to kind of be a little bit of a spark there, you know that 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 was always very natural to me though, and and uh, so I'm I'm seventeen eighteen I guess trying to navigate all of that and see where that's going. And I prayed that prayer at 17 and, and, uh, it was, I'm still working in radio, uh, at an adult contemporary station by this time and, um, doing everything that there is to do in radio, um, in small market, you just do it all. And I remember signing on the station, we signed on 6am and, uh, our transmitter was out in a field, a cow pasture about four miles from the station. And, and we we uh, piped that signal out to the transmitter, you know. And so I remember lightning had struck or something the night before and flipped the breaker out there, and I couldn't get that transmitter to remotely kick. And I'm having to drive. So you put the LP on then because you're going to sign on late. So you put the LP on, yes. you drive out. I got a flashlight because it's a cow pasture. And folks <laughs> who've been through a cow pasture know what I'm talking about. Yes, indeed. And I'm Watch. looking, and I get out there, and I flip the breaker, and I'm taking meter readings and everything, and I go back, and I'm signing on 15 minutes late probably, and then I've got the weather, and then I've got to pull some news together from the state police post. All that. It was pretty hilarious, to be honest with you. And um, What training? I, I, was, I wouldn't take anything for it. Yeah. I, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I, and I was developing a sense of community at that point uh-huh. in my late teens, Um figuring out what a community is and does uh, because you, you know, through your life, you're going to exist in one community or another, not just a civic community, church community, uh, business community. And so all of this is people trying to work together, figure out their role. And then if you have any role of leadership, you got to figure out how to direct that. So um, that was always interesting to me. And it started, I think at that age, you know, 17, 18, 19 and in, in radio and, um, uh, I, I started selling ads on the side to make a little extra money and uh, figured out what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. So that was, uh, and this would take me down a whole different road. I don't know if you want to go there. Have at it. I I wanted to learn, um, I, I, I'm selling ads to make a commission, you know, to, to make extra money and, um, and, and was enjoying everything else I was doing. I had a four hour, uh, air shift, I think at the time and a little bit of production and then was doing the news and blah, blah, blah. 
Okay, so um, so to sell ads, you know, you you'd, you'd sponsor something, sponsor a weather forecast, you'd sponsor a, a newscast, you'd sponsor, you know, whatever, or you'd have a certain number of spots per month. And I think our spots were about three bucks for a thirty-second spot. That'll tell you where and when we were. Okay, so. Um, uh, you you could you could sponsor Paul Harvey all month for like a hundred bucks. Wow. Oh man, you'd you'd get Paul Harvey every day for a hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. So I'm going into the local stores trying to sell this and, and local, you know, the feed mill and and these places, and uh, and, and learning what uh, how to how to talk, how to relate, how to be honest, how to be. Um, uh, you, you know, faithful. And I'd, I'd call on these people at the same time every week, you know, so I'm being consistent and they could see me and learn me and, you know, trying to sell benefits and, and this kind of thing of advertising on a small market radio station. And uh, I didn't think I was doing that good. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd earn a little commission and I'd, I'd go, well, I bet I could be better than this. And I, I got an audio tape called Secrets of Closing the Sale by Zig Ziglar. Yes. Now, I, I, I heard that tape, and he had some some closes, and, and, and basically it was, it was all just a wonderful way of viewing the sales process and bringing you to a logical co- conclusion of why this would benefit you. It wasn't any trickery. It wasn't any, any kind of fast, you know, salesmanship-y kind of thing we, mm-hmm. we think of. It was just a brilliant man who had learned how to meet the needs of his customers and, and verbalize that to train others. Okay. He was going to be in Lexington, Kentucky doing a seminar. And I took off work and went to Lexington to see and hopefully meet Zig Ziglar. Bill, there were 2,500 businessmen there. This was not a Christian gathering, it was a secular gathering okay. at the, the convention center there. I think my ticket was 25 bucks. And, um, and, and so, and I had, I think, uh, 25 bucks and a, and a tank of gas and maybe another 30 bucks for food and stuff, you know, that's all I had. And, uh, so I went there, well, I ended up buying two books, got him to sign it. I bought see you at the top, which was his big book and, uh, and another one. And, uh, so you're broke. I am. I am. And gladly broke. I had enough gas to get back home. I didn't eat. And that was, that was good. But the best thing happened to me that day, I'm 19 years old and I see him go through the whole day of sales training, other speakers and everything. He comes back at basically three 30 for the keynote. This is where it's a 90 minute power packed. You're going to get it now from Zig Ziglar. And if you folks don't know that name, Google Zig Ziglar. Mm-hmm. He's he's gone to heaven now, but he was one of the most influential people of this of the 20th century. And uh, and I'm fixing to tell you a personal testimony of why. So he gets in this this uh, he, he you know he's a big enough name to have attracted 2,500 businessmen to pay at least 20, 25 was the cheap ticket mm-hmm. uh, in Lexington, Kentucky. He's got them all. He's told them how to sell. He's told them why they can be great. And in the middle of all that, he says, now, if you're going to build, if you're going to take this that I've given you today and build it on something, you've got to have a firm foundation to build that on. And for me, it's got to be something that doesn't change. If a foundation is shakable, it's not a foundation for you. Now, you can build that on a lot of things. You can build that on a relationship with somebody. You can build it on a, a bottle of pills. You can build it on a bottle of booze. But for me, and I mean, I, I'm watching the body language in this convention center. They're all leaned in. You know? mm-hmm. He said, for me, I've built it on the word of God because it is truth. It's unshakable and it never changes. God says he is the same uh, yesterday, today, and forever. And, and in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Mm-hmm. So, he says, let me tell you about my journey. And he presents the plan of accepting Christ as a believer in this secular setting with, I mean, you could have heard a pin drop in here. Zig didn't find the Lord till he was in his 40s. And, uh, and, and when he did, he said everything changed, you know. And, and he gave that short, concise, wonderfully impacting testimony. And then he went right on with his presentation. Well, I was sold. 
I thought, man, I, I, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Now, I don't know what that guy looks like playing a guitar, but that's who I want to be. <laughs> and I, I, I went, I, he signed my book, and he signed it with a scripture. And he signed it with um, the, the See at the Top book. He signed it with the I am the vine and you are the branches uh, scripture. And um, so fast forward to uh, mm, 20 years later or whatever it was, when we had Zig would show up at our Gaither concerts and just buy a ticket and really? he and his whole family be in the audience. He would never call up and say, Hey, this is Zig Ziglar. We'd like to come. We never knew he was coming. He'd buy a ticket at online at Ticketmaster or whatever wow. you do, you know? So somebody would say, I think Zig Ziglar is in the audience. You know? So finally one year, Bill booked him and said, would you come and speak at, um, at family fest that we do in Gatlinburg right. here every and he and his wife and, and their daughters uh, came. They have, they have uh, two daughters and a son, uh, and, and then had a daughter that, that had passed on. He wrote a book about that journey through her death as well. And that's when he found the Gaither Homecomings. When he was grieving the loss of his daughter, he flipped mm. on the TV one night, wow. and Vestal was singing. And he found the Gaither music and began to pursue that. And that's, that was the connection. And, and in, I was playing guitar on that cut that he you know so when we got him there i brought my see you at the top books in this bookshelf right here mm -hmm. and my bookmark in there is my ticket and i held it up had the date and time uh, you know the the, the 25 dollars and i introduced zig ziglar that morning it was one of the most wonderful full circle moments for me and got to to uh, got to just know him mm -hmm. And have since, I, I'm affiliated with their uh, corporation now. Zig is no longer here, and his, he and his wife have passed. And um, his son uh, run is the CEO of uh, Ziegler International there in Dallas. And uh, I am a, a certified speaker and trainer with Ziegler uh, International now. And so, um, so I get to speak and tell exactly what I just told you and a little more in-depth about his principles, which were all biblical and all based on a strong faith in Christ and what that could do to change a life. So, um, so uh, to me, that is one of the greatest stories I could ever tell. And in the work mm -hmm. I do with youth and especially in Kentucky, my home state, um, I'm always referring to Zig who impacted my life in such a heavy way, uh, by just being, you know, he, he could have been a preacher. I mean, if you heard him, you'd probably think he was a preacher. But he was just a he guy. He had that style, that, that preacher style. And yes. he, he taught a uh, Sunday school class at Prestonwood Baptist there, I think, in Dallas for probably about 30 years, you know. A uh, very consistent man. But, uh, but he just was a guy who had a testimony. And I think that impacts people when you can speak from your personal life, you know, about how God's changed you, what Christ has done for you and is doing in your life. Uh, that's more important than any song I could sing or anything I could ever play on a guitar, you know. One of the probably pinnacle moments of your career was however it happened, and that's the story that I want to ask you about is you, you connected with Bill Gaither some way, somehow, and that has led to an incredible career, not just in, you know, in his music and with uh, the Gaither Vocal Band and Gaither Homecoming, but in your own personal projects and then the connections that that's one of the great things about bill is he, he, he connects people, you know, he brings he sure folks does. together and, uh, for their benefit, not so much for his, although he, you know, sure. obviously, uh, benefits too, but, um, what a heart the guy has, but, but tell me how that happened. It's wonderful. Um, well, I was a fan of the Gaither Trio and the vocal band, and I had never seen the vocal band in concert. I had seen the trio in Lexington uh, growing up with Gary McSpadden, that, that mm -hmm. version of the trio, Bill Gloria and Gary. They had a band of backup singers and white suits and all this good stuff. Man, I just thought, this is incredible. They had horns in the band, you know. And, uh, you know, the background singers uh, for the Gaithers were, you know, Sandy Patty and Steve Green and people like that, you know. And, and I knew everybody who had come through that camp had gone on to greatness. And mm -hmm. it's just, it's something to study. It's really interesting. And uh, so I, when I moved to Nashville in 87, 88, um, I was working, I'd taken a job with the Blackwoods. 
And then uh, about a year later, I took a job with uh, Georgia native Wendy Bagwell, uh, a group called Wendy Bagwell and the Sunlighters. Wendy was the first to ever sell a million records in Christian music. And uh, with a funny story he had, he was a comedian. And uh, he had a story called Here Come the Rattlesnakes. And uh, it, it just took the world by storm in the 70s. First gospel group to ever play Carnegie Hall, first to tour overseas, all that stuff. So they were big in the 70s, and I was with them in the late 80s okay. on, the, on the back end of their right. career. And I would travel to, uh, to Atlanta every week for five years to catch the bus, and, and uh, <laughs> it, was just, uh, it was wonderful. I, I, you know, that was just the best five years. Learned a lot from him, and he had a great sense of humor. And, and so I was sort of at the end of that five-year period, and I was getting my recording session thing going in Nashville – a lot of people don't know what that is. And, and so if you're an artist, country artist, uh, Christian artist, most of the time, uh, the people who play in your band don't necessarily play on the records. A lot of times they do, but most of the time, it's another group of musicians who are trained at reading charts and creating on the fly. They're just, you know, so they don't recreate music all the time. These are the guys who who actually sit down and go, oh, I got an idea about this. What if we did this? What if we did that? And, and pretty soon a song is built. Mm -hmm. and, and I knew those guys. I knew the names from the album covers. I could tell you who played on every album from Don Williams to, to uh, The Doors uh, back then, <laughs> to uh, Diana Ross and The Supremes, to, you know, you name it. So um, uh, in Nashville, there was an elite, elite group of guys that played on most of the Christian stuff. And I wanted to be in that. I wanted to be that guy. Mm -hmm. uh, I felt like I had a lot to offer. And, and uh, when I got here, uh, I wasn't so special. I, I, I figured out, that, you know, everybody is talented and gifted that's here. And so I'm just one of them. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so, you know, I began to find my way. And the Lord was opening doors. And I was beginning to play on a lot of records. Ben Spear, um, Southern Gospel uh, producer and, and a legendary spear family, you know, mm -hmm. Ben was producing a lot back then and he had latched onto me and, and, uh, was using me quite a bit. And a lot of the other producers first record I got to do in Southern gospel music that I got to play on was the cathedral quartet, which was a huge thing for me. And, and they brought me in and, and then I was playing on everybody from the Florida boys to, uh, uh Wendy Bagwell to you, you name it. Well, anyway, um, Ben called me one day, and this is in 92, and he said, uh, or 91, and he said, I'm, uh, Bill Gaither is producing a record, and, uh, and I'm just booking the players. You want to play guitar on that? And I said, yeah. And uh, so, so he booked the musicians and helped with the arrangements, and I met Bill Gaither on that session. Uh, I said, hey, I'm Kevin, the guitar player. He said, good. <laughs> Very meaningful Take first impression. <laughs> so uh so then he liked what and now the record he was producing phil you'll remember this you remember when bill put the statesman back together with jake hess and hovey lister yes and then he had some younger guys uh in there he had biney english uh singing the lead and uh johnny what was the tenor's name uh gosh that tenor was great and uh, anyway, he, he was reforming the Statesman Quartet because of his affection mm -hmm. for Jake Hess and Hovey Lister. Mm -hmm. And we recorded Goodbye World, oh, Goodbye. Oh, yes. Those songs. That's okay. Standard. So I played on that. That okay. was in 91 or 92. And then they, they liked what I did. They booked me back for another record, booked me back for another record. And so three records I've done, and I've had very little conversation, not even 20 words with Mr. Gaither through all of that. And um, he's just very focused, and mm -hmm. he's into what he's doing, and he's uh, you, you just kind of don't get in the way, mm -hmm. you know. You just kind of do do what the vision that's cast there, and it's very good. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I was getting a little paranoid by the third record. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how, well, how I stood. was fitting in. Thing. Yeah, I, I went to him in the control room, and I said, "Is the guitar working for you?" And he went, "What?" And I said, "I thought, oh no, I'm committed now." I said. Uh, well, the stuff I'm playing, I, I just want to make sure you're okay with what I'm doing. He said, oh, yeah, just stay out of the way. And I thought, was that rude or was that, what is that, you know? And, the, and if you know him at all, that is, that's sort of the comment he would make. Uh -huh. And here was the meaning behind that, although I didn't know what to make of it at the time. But uh, 
these tracks that we were doing for the Statesman Quartet are all so piano driven and I'm playing rhythm to the piano and, and it's a supportive role. It's uh, clear, you know, and, 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 and I enjoy doing that, but that's what he was saying. No place for a guitar solo. Just stay out of the way. Yeah. So in other words, don't get in the way of the piano enhance what's happening, but you know, and, and well, yeah. Okay. So (laughs) when I tell that story, people go, you know, like, oh, my gosh. And that's kind of the way I took it. I, I thought, well, what's he mean there? Mm-hmm. And after I got to know him, I knew exactly what he meant. But that day, it was a little humbling. And I thought, well, I know he likes what I'm doing, or he wouldn't book me back. He can have anybody he wants on this record, you know. So, so I let that go. Phil, about two months later, uh, this would have been in the middle of 92, about two months after we did that third record, a uh, guy calls and says, hey, there's an opening with the Gaither vocal band. Would, would you like to go out with them? And I said, well, let me pray about that. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> I, I literally did that. Uh, right. And, and what was so funny, this is typical Gaither fashion too. Um, the, the guy that he'd had call me chased me around to the session that I was at. We didn't have cell phones in those days. So um, they found me at whatever studio I was at and called that studio during the session and held while I it's kind of wow. kind of interesting. And uh, I said, yeah, what's what's uh, what's happening? And they said, well, there's just an opening. And at that time, Bill's son-in-law, Barry Jennings, was uh, kind of coming off the road. He was going to manage the group and, and the company. And so uh, they were just looking for somebody to kind of Who was the in. group then? Pardon me? Who was the group then? Uh, that was Mark Lowry, mm-hmm. uh, Michael English, okay. and Terry mm-hmm. Franklin. Uh, I don't know if you remember Terry saying beautiful tenor back then. And, and so there was a window of time. I think Terry made two records with him. Okay. And uh, so it was right in that time. And uh, that piece of the rock album uh, was the the new record at the time. And he had just done the uh, Oh, Happy Day video. So about the second or third video. And um, the homecoming thing had not taken off at that time it was it was you know just uh on the the creative side uh, at that point so uh i said do i have to audition for this or something they said no mr gaither's heard you play and, and we we like your play and just wonder about your availability and your interest and i said well what are you talking about they said this weekend <laughs> and i said That's okay fast. Uh, i gotta learn some material and they overnighted me the stuff and uh, i learned about 20 songs I think we only did four of those songs that night. I knew virtually none of the material we were doing and, um, and played everything really badly the weekend that I went out. I played so badly, Phil. But, but um, uh, I, they flew me up there. I had about a 30-minute run-through on some stuff, and then they put me on the bus, and we went to Port Huron, Michigan, and somewhere, and Chicago. And we were... Uh, uh, Horrible story here. So this is uh, the end of 92. We're in Chicago, 5,000 people in the room. That's the largest crowd I played for at that time. And uh, on stage with the Gaither Trio and the Gaither Vocal Band. And we are live on Moody Radio at the time. So it's going out everywhere across the world. And I'm, I'm messing everything up. I mean, I, oh, Phil, I couldn't, I couldn't play a note right to save my soul that night. And, um, was it nerves? I, I don't know what was happening. Yeah. I, I, probably a total nervous breakdown. <laughs> I don't know. So, In a Swanberg style. Right, right. And it's my third date. So you'd think I would get better progressively through them. And I, I don't think it was. And, and, and a part of my little job was to run the soundtracks when they would do something with the soundtrack. Uh-huh. Uh, the bigger songs all had orchestra on them, you know, so so I'd hit that. Well, uh, we were using DAT machines for any of you broadcasters back then. They, yeah. it, it was digital machine, but it was very mechanical and very haphazard and motors spinning, you know, and all that. And, and I had two DAT machines here. And then if Bill went to the pianos, I played live with Bill. And it was just very intimate like that. So he called The King is Coming. He And we don't have a set list. 29 years, I've never had a set list with Mr. Gaither. He just calls the song. So he called The King is Coming, Mm -hmm. and I punch up The King is Coming, and the little motor's going over here trying to get to, you know, that cut. And he's he's wanting it now. So I hit it, and and The King is Coming starts playing, and and then 
he tells me to cue up the next song about a minute in. When we, we got to that second verse, he tells me what the next song is going to be. So I think was because he lives. And um, so I went to cue up that and I hit the wrong player and I stopped the King is coming on the second verse. I can hear the chariots rumble. I can see the marching because he lives. <laughs> no, I, I actually didn't push play. I just pushed stop. Oh, I, I actually ejected the King is coming. The King was sitting right here. Oh, so, um, oh it was such a climactic stop. It was horrible. And 5,000 people and live on the radio. And Mr. Gaither looked around at me like, what kind of idiot have I hired here? And I thought, well, there's my, my bus ticket back right there. I'm on a Greyhound. I won't, they won't even let me ride with them. Going back. And um, so he moved around to the piano. And uh, it was just horrible. It was as, as fiery a crash as I can imagine. And he plays something on the piano. And they sing. And he says, honey, pray. And Gloria prays. And uh, I'm sweating bullets. And after the prayer, he, he, he hadn't introduced me all night. And uh, he decides to introduce me. <laughs> after, this is after, after the disaster. Prayer. After the disaster, the smoke is settling. Uh-huh. Out, you know? And he, he says, uh, we got a new kid traveling with us this weekend, uh, Kevin Williams. Give Kevin a big hand. And they, they applaud. And he says, Kevin's the kid who stopped that track. In the <laughs> he did that. And and I don't have a microphone back. I don't have anything. And uh, he said, uh, and he won't look at me. He's playing the piano, and I'm over here. You he will not look at me. And he said, Kevin, why why'd you stop that track? And I can't tell you what came over me. I didn't mean this to be funny. I just yelled, for the love of God, I don't know. And people <laughs> laughed. 5,000 people laughed in that auditorium. And he looked at me like, what just happened? And I got a laugh. Uh-huh. And, and he just went, ha, <laughs> ha. And he went on, and they began to sing Because He Lives, and I hit that track, and we did it. And he came back, and he put his hands on my shoulders. He said, you're going to work out. This is going to be good. And he did that. And I thought, thank you, Lord, for the, your grace through this yes. wonderful man. And uh, and I know it was just a mistake I made, but it was a big one. And that grace in that mm-hmm. moment was mm-hmm. what I needed. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think the laugh. God gave me a laugh and it saved me. It was interesting. And uh, Bill doesn't even recall that night. He has no recollection of that moment now. It's so, you know, so much water under the bridge. And uh, But for he you, asked me it, one time, it gave I'm you sorry. the magic of realizing that you had this comedic gift of being able to retort back to him and and the crowd loves that. Well, from that point on, whenever we would do studio sessions, because we didn't use that on stage immediately, uh, uh, Mark and, and Bill had this uh, rapport that was just amazing right. and, you know, became uh, a world famous with yeah. these routines they would do. Mm-hmm. So he didn't need that from me. But uh, in the studio, we would banter back and forth, and it was funny uh, on the mics and right before, you know, he, we would cut something and the musicians would all laugh and the producers would laugh. It, it was just kind of like a radio show. And so when, uh, when Mark left us for the first time, uh, years later, then Bill said, do you think we could take what we do and, and make it translate to a stage? And I said, I don't know how you do that with a guitar player. I, nobody, nobody ever seen a guitar player. You do it with a camera. Talk. And even Jay Leno's guy, you know, that started after we had done our thing, uh-huh. not because we did our thing, yeah. but just after. So nobody had seen that with, with the guitar player sitting here with a headset mic on. Mm-hmm. It was strange. And in fact, it wasn't a headset. It was a, a boom mic and it was and the camera would have to catch. Everything was upside down about this. <laughs> and um, and yet it was funny enough to make it yes. survive. And uh, and then I was developing how do I come off not looking uh you know, he, he's much older than I, well, he's 30 years older than I. So how do I not look disrespectful? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do I uh, appear engaged and respectful and yet be a little sarcastic and a little fun? You know, that was a fine line to walk and people had to learn me. And, and uh, I was learning to do things like in the, in the big halls where, where the sound would echo, I would have to slow down my cadence of my speech, you know, mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and where it was brittle, I would have to warm up my tone and just just things. That old you radio were, training. It was. It was. Yeah, yeah, it was all coming together. Yeah. But 
thank God it did. And he's he is great with fastball humor. He gets it, and and uh, he loves old jokes and old routines. He could quote you every line of an Abbott and Costello routine mm-hmm. or a Bob and Ray or some, you know. Um, and I respect that as well. So that developed into whatever you see today, and it's all out of love and and uh, it, both of us enjoying being funny with each other. You've traveled to every state, right? I think so. I think uh, um, 18 countries, five continents, five continents around the world with Bill Gaither doing what y'all do. Um, one of the stories that my – a personal story that I have that, and I'm not sure if I've shared this with you or not, but of course, Bill, um, had a a wonderful relationship with Jake Hess. Very close. And Jake moved to Columbus, um, late nineties, maybe some in the Mm -hmm. nineties. And I found out about it. And I was a big statesman from a kid from, I can remember 12 years old going to the city auditorium in Chattanooga Wow. to listen to the all day sing. And of course the, the, the highlight was the Statesman and the Blackwood brothers. Absolutely. <clears throat> and so when I found out that my childhood gospel music hero was living in Columbus, Georgia, I said, I got to, I got to do a story on Jake. How do I, you know, how do I, where do I start? I got in touch with Chris, his son and, and told Chris, I said, please, is there any way that, that I can talk with your dad? He arranged a lunch so we go to lunch together, and I told Jake, I said, Jake, I, I, I can't tell you in my heart how much I love the man you are, the singer you are, the person you are. Um, and I said, I would love to, to do a story on you. He says, well, Phil, there's, a, there's only really one way to do that story. You need to come on the road with me. Love it. I said, I mean, my heart's racing, and I'm thinking, what's he talking about? And he said, my, my bus picks me up on Wednesday night at midnight. We'll drive to a location, drive all night, uh, take Thursday off, and then we'll, we'll do a concert Friday night, uh, drive you know, to the next spot and do a concert Saturday night. He said, I'll have you back here for Sunday school Sunday morning. And he said, I can't tell you right now the, the, the locations yet, but he said, I'll, I'll check the calendar and give you a call back and within a matter of a few weeks. And, and ironically, the house that he had here in town was like five minutes from mine. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were practically neighbors, and I didn't even realize wow. it. So my wife drops me off at midnight in the cul-de-sac that he lived on, and I'm, I'm cruising down the road at 1 in the morning talking to Jake Hess on his bus. How cool is that? I was just, I mean, I was a kid having the dream of a lifetime. We stopped in Birmingham and uh, picked up Bob Kane. He got on the bus. Ben Spear was on the bus. Mm -hmm. Um, Allison uh, was on Mm -hmm. the bus. Um, We stopped in Nashville and picked up Jake Jr. He got on. Wow. We drove to Fort Wayne, Indiana. That was the... This was probably 2000, 2001, right in there. So about right. t- a little over 20 years ago. And um, so so we got there, and I don't know any of these people. I wouldn't have known you. I didn't right. know Mark Lowry. I didn't know Guy Penrod. I didn't know Vestal Goodman. I knew of them, but I certainly didn't know them well enough to walk up. And, sure. and so Jake paves the way for me to do interviews with each of these iconic figures in Southern Gospel music. That's amazing. We, uh, because we had so much time to prepare for the Friday night concert, because we got there on Thursday, I got all my shooting done between Thursday and Friday afternoon. Then we get on the bus, head to Louisville. The concert Saturday night was in Louisville. And, um, and one of the neat things that I remember after interviewing uh, Jake after we got back, I actually produced a 30 minute special that highlighted a lot of that trip. And, um, and one of the things that I remember that he told me was, um, Phil, he said, one of the neat things about, you know, the, the Gaither concerts is there's always every night there's, he called it a sweet moment. Mm -hmm. And he says, you, you never know who the singer's going to be. You never know what the song's going to be. But he says, it's just 
the spirit just settles down and it and that was his description of it. It was just a sweet moment. And great. Um, and that that was, of course, the kind of guy he was. He was a sweet guy. And mm-hmm. but for him to take a perfect stranger and welcome him aboard his bus to tell whatever little snid bit of his story that I could tell in thirty minutes, and of course, a, a lifetime like his, you couldn't right. package that in half an hour. But but I tried my best. But um, he was that way. He was just welcoming and open like that. Yeah, and of course he's. They uh, they had his funeral service here uh, in Columbus. He was buried in Juniper outside, and and put a bug in Bill's ear. You guys haven't been to Columbus in a couple of years, so it's it's yeah. about time for you to you know, make a swing back through. I agree. It's about time. Uh, but, it's about time. Um, there was a trip that you made, and and uh, this was one of those moments in time that you um, that you will always remember. I walked into the newsroom one day, and uh, this was back in the days when they had the pink telephone slips that they would, oh, yeah. if somebody called the date, time, and who called. While you were out. Some, you got it. <laughs> and and I, I walked in the newsroom, and somebody handed me one of those, and I looked at it, and it's from Bill Gaither. <laughs> what? That's awesome. I'm, I'm getting a phone call from Bill Gaither. And... Uh, <laughs> A local uh, newspaper writer um, that um, that knew Bill uh, had Bill was trying to get some video done of the trip that was going to be made out to to Jake's gravesite. They wanted to, right. to, to to go out to the country and just spend some time uh, reminiscing uh, about Jake, and and so they needed somebody to capture that. And right. this reporter knew that I had some video background and plus I worked at a TV station. So that was, that's what the purpose of the call was, but it allowed me to, to ride on that bus out there with them to that site and capture the sacred moment of members of the Sacred is a good word. It was that it it really was. Uh, That service was beautiful. And then uh, just, just that whole time following uh, as well, because we'd all been impacted by Jake's life, you mm-hmm. know, and, and me in, in his later life. I, uh, I was listening to some of the Statesman and Blackwood stuff when I was younger, but I was listening to so much stuff. It, it got drowned out a little bit by all the other noise in, in, uh, in my head. And then, um, but, but when I would refer to what I thought was the greatest quartet sounds, mm-hmm. especially the fifties and sixties, mm-hmm. it, it would always go back to, Blackwoods and Statesman, you know, yeah. and then by the eighties, I was into the cathedral quartet. I thought they were just tops, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would progress through, I was into a lot of the mixed groups and that kind of thing. But, um, then when I got, got, uh, to playing for the vocal band and every day talking with Bill, he referred to the Statesman in some conversation mm-hmm. in 1948, the Statesman or whatever year it would have been mm-hmm. affected him. So so drastically that he refers to it literally every day to the statesman quality or tone or approach or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And so for me to get that, that kind of impact from uh, Jake Hess in my uh, career from Jake's later life was just, just profound. Well, I envy you, my friend, that you um, get to spend, you know, this kind of time in, in this environment and, it's not just being around the people, mm-hmm. but it's being exposed to what God's Spirit does through the songs that are sung at those concerts in the hearts of the people that are sitting out in the audience. You, you know, uh, it, I'm, I'm honored uh, to, to still be, you know, still be doing this at 29 years with the Gaithers plus all the other years I've had in the business, but, but uh, to still be out there night after night, and I get to hear great testimonies from people Mm-hmm. Uh, who testify to what God has done through the songs or through, you know, if I, if I could tell you every time somebody said I was going to take my life mm-hmm. and I flipped on the TV and there were you guys singing and they'll say the song, mm-hmm. you know, because he lives, I can face tomorrow or something. And um, you don't realize that when you're just trying to get the guitar in tune and play your part and stay out of the way. And, and that's, uh, that's the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, 
the other part of it for me is seeing the faith journey, all these people that, that I do get to interface with artist wise. Um, for instance, Jake Hess, who um, was in such poor physical health for so much of his life. He barely had a heart muscle left, you know, mm -hmm. and had every kind of uh, diagnosis you can imagine. And he still went out there every night and gave it his all and influenced people. And I mean, it took faith to walk on that stage most of the time. And you, you'd never know it. You'd never know it. Yeah. He, he just, he shined and beamed. Yeah. I remember his, he had a tremor in that hand, you know, that hand would shake. You remember? Yeah. Uh -huh. And he'd stand on stage and he'd have that hand in his pocket. And that it was so you wouldn't see the tremor. Mm -hmm. People just thought Jake was cool singing with his hand in his pocket, you know, but th those, those steps of faith to see those people get on stage every night. I remember um, after uh, Miss Joyce had passed and, and Jake, you know, Jake grieved and Bill said, why don't you come on out on the road? And uh, after uh, uh, when Howard Goodman passed and Vestal grieved and then she came back out, you know, because we sing, to get through those times yeah. in life. And mm -hmm. we, we share our story through the gift that God's given us. And, and, and to see these people of this caliber do that, what that meant to a, a little guitar player guy sitting over in the corner, just, you know, it's profoundly affected me in ways that I, I, I will write a book at some point and I'll call it the best seat in the house because I feel oh, like for yes. 29 years, I've had the best seat in the house, you know, I, I envy you. Um, I appreciate you for your talent, Thank you. uh, for your heart that we've, we've been able to dip into just a little bit and, and scratch the surface on who Kevin really is. Uh, thank you for your friendship. I'm just an old news anchor that likes to, you know, uh, tag along and, and try to get to as many of the Gaither vocal band. And I'll mention for our viewers' sake, Todd Suttles. Uh, with the Gaither vocal band is from my hometown. We went to the same high school, Lafayette I high didn't school. know that. Yes. Yes, Todd is from Lafayette, Georgia, and the, That's right. the concert that we had in Chattanooga, y'all had, it's been five years ago, um, mm -hmm. Todd came down off the stage. In fact, before the concert, I had reached out to um, uh, the PR folks and said, I would love for my mom to meet Todd, being from Lafayette, because right. uh, mom had worked with Todd's mother at, in the, at the Board of Education, so... Wow. Um, and so Todd, he came with signed, autographed photos to give her. Oh, my the God. The song was, the y'all were starting the songs on the stage. And I'm thinking, Todd, hurry. They're going to need you out there. <laughs> he was hanging, giving hugs He's to the mom. And then on, the on the stage, uh, he came, he, he, a lot of his folks were in the, the uh, further back in the auditorium. So he came down off the stage. And we put mom on the end of the row. She was sitting right on the, on the oh, okay. end seat. And he, he went back and sang to his folks. And as he came back, he stopped at mom's seat, and reached down and gave her a hug. Aww. And mom, my mom passed away two months from that night. Really? That was the biggest blessing in the last part of her life to have been ministered to by the Gaither Vocal Band and then to have had that kind of personal attention shown her um yeah. she glowed mom was sick but after the concert she says let's go get something to eat and we went into a restaurant in downtown Ch we didn't get home till after oh. midnight and mom oh, was my. 86 what years old night. yeah w the, that memory will will last me you know until i'm gone but i'll tell todd that. that's sweet that's very sweet and he yeah. he's just um uh, in, on other occasions, when I've seen him, he said, "Yeah, there's my Lafette Rambler is what we were called. That was our mascot, Lafette Rambler. So oh, there's my Lafette yeah. Rambler friend." But Kevin, it. we could talk another hour. I could talk to you the, the rest of the day, but uh, we're well. Let's continue this another time. I would, I'd be delighted, and uh, we just appreciate you, Phil, and all you do. You're you're always so professional and so great in presenting the way you do, and and uh, you're just a good friend. We we certainly appreciate you and wish you. Wonderful holidays. Merry Christmas to you, and good being with you on your program. Well, thank you. I tell Kathy, your wife, and Olivia and Carolina, your daughters, 
Merry Christmas. We hope that the Lord's blessings will just shower y'all all season through. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with me here on my podcast. Glad to. Delighted it's called. God bless you. Thanks, Dylan. Appreciate you. It's called Faces of Faith, and this time of the podcast, we always tell you that regardless of whatever you might be going through, always remember, keep the faith.